Hello, welcome to episode four of Freaking Out About Opening Day with Randy Freaking, the podcast about the history and celebrations of Cincinnati's most revered non-religious holiday. In our first three episodes, we gave an overview of the storied history of opening day in Cincinnati. We did that in episode one. Greg Rhodes and I then discussed the special occasions that have occurred on opening day in episode two. And Howard Wilkinson joined us in episode three as we explored the myths surrounding opening day. We have not yet delved into why so many celebrations surround our city's annual holiday that coincides with the arrival of spring, which brings us to this fourth episode. As you may remember from episode one, the Reds began to recognize an official opening day in 1886 and it started relatively small with the novel idea of canaries greeting patrons as they pass through the turnstiles and a full-blown 90-minute concert preceding the opener for the first time. Today we are going to explore how the official opening day in 1886 grew into an annual spectacle that it is today by focusing on one man, Frank Bancroft, who is regarded as the father of opening day. Most of us are familiar with the centerpiece of opening day, the annual Finley Market Parade that began in 1920. But how did all the hoopla surrounding opening day gain real traction? After all, opening day is often complicated by springtime weather, and yet Cincinnatians have celebrated the opener as if it was always warm and sunny. To learn all about this topic, I invited John Arardi to join us today because John is a bona fide expert on the contributions of Frank Bancroft. John is the author or co-author of eight sports books, two of them, one titled Crosley Field and the other called Big Red Dynasty, were named top 10 finalists by Spitball Literary Magazine as the best baseball books of the year, and Big Red Machine was rated as a top five finalist for the Seymour Medal for Best Baseball History. His piece on high school basketball player Nick Mosley won a National First Place Feature Writing Award from the Associated Press Sports Editors, and his story on Cincinnati and the Negro Leagues was named the best feature in a state newspaper, all departments, by the AP. John's most recent book is titled Tony Perez, From Cuba to Cooperstown, which is an amazing history of one of the most popular players in Cincinnati Reds history. John covered Perez. Perez was nicknamed the Big Dog or Doggy through four decades, from his playing and managerial days to his Hall of Fame induction and his statue dedication at Great American Ballpark. And John spent days, if not weeks, in Cuba as he researched the Big Dog's formative years on the island. I really enjoyed the historical background about Cuba and Perez's upbringing, and it is a wonderful book for any baseball fan or history buff. Now, without further ado, let's welcome John Arardi to our program. Hello, Randy. Pleasure to be here. So, John, we explored a lot in our first three episodes and bounced around a bit. We bounced from the 1890s to the 1980s up to the present day. But today we want to be a little bit more focused and concentrate on the one man that you and others regard as the father of opening day, Frank Bancroft. And I think you nickname him Banny. 
so Bancroft was hired by the Reds as their business manager before the 1892 season. So what was his background? And then we'll get into why he's so important. I think the most interesting thing about Banny was that he grew up in Massachusetts, a little town called Lancaster. And when he was 15 years old, he walked off the grounds of the Kilburn Academy because he just couldn't stand the thought of not being involved in the Civil War. <laughs> and he was afraid to take a railroad. He thought somebody might recognize him, report him to his dad. And he thought, well, I'm either going to walk or hitch a ride on some wagon. And uh, I think he did the latter, wound up enlisting uh, with the uh, New Hampshire Corps and ultimately went to uh, Louisiana. And he wound up taking a bullet. He was a uh, courier for the colonel. And he was on a mission. One of his missions, the guy riding next to him got his head blown off. That, that got Banny's attention. And on one of his next rides, he, he got hit by a sniper in the thigh. And he convalesced in uh, southern Louisiana for a while. Then he he didn't go home. He went right back in the uh, New Hampshire Volunteers. And um, he mustered out after a full four years, served the full four years, uh, went back to New England, opened up a theater at one point, had a a trained seal. He real he realized that <laughs> the seal everybody's spending good money, but it won't cover the seal's food. So <laughs> the fish for the seal. So he had to sell the seal. And another time, he was uh, had a piano and did some uh, singing and dancing. But just a real character. And ultimately, because he did play baseball in Lancaster, he got back into the game and um, wound his way to Cincinnati. Wound up. Uh, I think being business manager for a team called Kelly's Killers, they were on the uh, east side of Cincinnati, yes, near Pendleton, and um, ultimately made his way to the Reds. Uh, and I think you said eighteen ninety two or eighteen ninety three. Yeah, I think he he somehow met John Brush, who yeah. became the owner of the Reds. But he met John Brush when he worked a few years earlier in Indianapolis when Brush had a team, and then somehow Brush brought him back to the Reds. And he had bounced around for many years. It seemed like, in my research anyway, he was two or three years in one city, then two or right. three years in another city. And then he ends up being here for 28 or 29 years. Yeah, I think that Brush probably recognized what a go-getter and what a hustler Frank was because um, Frank just had that quality. And really, it's no exaggeration to call him the father of opening day because he started all the things, the, the, the best parades, uh, electric car parades, getting the players out there in uniform before the game, taking the car rides. Uh, in fact, in, in our opening day book, I have a section called Banny's 10 Tips for Opening Day, and you'd be surprised. Even today, Randy, uh, Frank was right on it. You could use these 10 tips, and you'd, you'd have a good opening day in Cincinnati. So he was he was a maestro, a go-getter, a hustler, and, uh, yeah, I'm not surprised that John Brush recognized that in him. Yeah, I hope you didn't mind that. I borrowed your top 10 tips for, oh, from yeah. Banny in my book. Keep it going. And they still apply today. Keep it going, by all okay. means. Okay. So what are some of the things that he innovated with uh, opening day? I think the, the, the beautiful thing about 1895, because I recognize that as being the truly the first no-holds-barred opening day and it was interesting because about that, he, he had actually gone to the World's Fair in Chicago and saw all the Edison lights and, you know, the white city they called. Everything was illuminated. And he also had spent some time uh, in New Orleans, uh, and he would see the great uh, brass bands, all different colors, um, 
all different mixture of instruments, mostly brass. And he just had the idea that if we do something, it's got to be heavily music-related, and we've got to get this tremendous streetcar parade right on through the entire city. So in the case of 1895, their manager was the great Buck Ewing, baseball's first great catcher. Was from, right, he was kind of the Johnny Bench of his era. He was era. the Johnny Bench of his day, and he was from the East End. So they took this parade all the way out to the East End, and they took it uh, to the West End. So people were going crazy. They were loving this thing. Both both teams, not just the Reds, but the visiting team as well. Each team manned a streetcar, and out front was the John Weber's uh, band. And I think he, uh, uh, Weber commissioned a tune for Buck Ewing for that opening day. So... But uh, Banny's idea was just to get the people involved. He would put um, the Reds, they try to get a new uniform, you know, not every year, but as often as they could. And he put up the big uh, uniform in the window of Grandpa Holly's. I'm not sure where it was, but it was it was basically the Reds. <laughs> I've seen a lot of ads for Holly's. Yeah. And, um, you know, show the people the uniform, get them interested. Banny's idea was, you know, let's try to get a local player on the team if we can. And if not a local player, somebody from here. So I, we mentioned Ewing. Yeah, Ewing uh, was a big star in the day, big, right? He played for the New York Giants. Yeah, and if you look at the Reds' record for the few years prior to that, I mean, Ewing took over a team that wasn't that good, and he made him good. And that's mm. a sign to me, a really good skipper at any sport. So he, they, I think they had a, a winning record three years in a row, and Banny had him, not Banny, but uh, Ewing had him playing ball like crazy, and then the other half of that equation was, and the, and the Reds did this in the uh, 1970s with Housem, is that not only have, do you have to play the game well, you have to cater to the fans. And I think Frank, being a an entertainer, he recognized, I got to go all out. There, there's stories uh, about Banny. He recognized how important kids were. He Banny would kind of make, after counting up the receipts of the day, he'd walk down to uh, a certain gate where the kids would gather. Mm-hmm. And he would just kind of open the, the gate, kind of absentmindedly <laughs> just do some whistling and all that. Yeah. And here come the kids come rushing through because Banny knew that the, the future of the game is the kids. And uh, he just had a great idea of, of what a, a baseball franchise should be, that it's for the fans. And I think that is the roots of Cincinnati's opening day. Because let's face it, opening day is for the fans more than any other game. Nothing's right. even close. You, you say the parade went to the east end? East end, west end. Do we have any idea how far that parade went? Like, is it down the, by Smithfield on Eastern Avenue? Yeah, I, th- I, mean, I think it probably did go that far. I mean, whether or not they did that in the future after Ewing left, I kind of doubt it. That was more or less a genuflection for Ewing. But yeah, I mean, it had to be It had to be an hour and a half long, at least from what I could tell, just look, looking at the route. I'm not sure what the mileage was, but they were out there for a while. Right, and the players, the players were in this parade, both, right? Both teams, fully uniformed. That's incredible. So and then the, uh, after the parade and the players, didn't they end up at like the Gibson Hotel downtown and have some kind of luncheon? I think they I think they did. I'm not sure of the order of it, but it could have been. But if you think about it, the Reds with Philly Market Parade, how occasionally, especially in recent years, they'll they'll try to get a pitcher in the parade who isn't playing that day and have him ride on top of some, you know, the backseat of some convertible. So it's the same idea. Make that connection with the fans. And that all started with Banny. Which is a big draw, obviously. Huge. People love it. And, and why not? You don't get to see those guys that up close and personal anymore. But uh, in that parade, you sure can. 
And how long did his parades last? I mean, uh, did they last until the Finley Market Parade? Did they kind of dissipate in the early yes. 20th century? 1902. For some reason, the Reds abandoned it. I don't know if it was cost. I don't know what it was. But even though the Reds abandoned it, the, um, the citizens took it over. I think a year or two later, 1903, 1904, they started up again themselves, which is a wonderful thing because it shows it didn't need the sponsorship of anybody. People here were so crazy for baseball, and they missed their parade, so they just started it up again. And in, in a way, it's kind of like that story a few years ago where opening day got canceled by a strike or player's walkout, and Philly Market went ahead and had the parade anyway, even though there wasn't a game. Yeah, no so game. that smacks of the same thing. It's our game. It's not the Reds game. It's our game, meaning the fans game. And doggone it, you may not be playing baseball that day because of a strike, but we're going to have a parade. That's right. Do we know anything else about what Banny did to make opening day special? Well, I I think primarily with Banny, um, he, he, not only, you know, was he so involved in the parade, but I just think he felt like, and I don't think he ever wrote down, you know, the 10 tips for opening day, but, but if you look at him, I mentioned the uniform in the window. Um, he would, he, right about that same time he came in, they started inviting dignitaries to opening day. I think um, in 1895, might have been the ceremonial first pitch. Might have been the first time that was done. Well, we had the mayor that year. The mayor that year. And Banny was behind that. The idea was... No big speech, just get the ball and throw it out, and we're going to play baseball. So that- Right. Greg talked a lot about that. Lingers to We even, we even had Governor day. McKinley, 1894. There you, there you Banny, Banny brought down the governor of Ohio yeah. somehow. Amazing. That's a long trek from Columbus, it, Ohio in it's, those days. It's a long trip in those days because you didn't have the the uh, the cars. But uh, yeah, it was it was cool. Um, and just looking at some of the other things on his list, um, you know, he, he always, his, his philosophy was, he always said- Opening day is the people's day. So he didn't do anything for opening day if it wasn't for the fans. And I think that still permeates to this day. He, he also liked the idea of having something new in the ballpark. And it's interesting from 1895, I think that's the first year of the batter's eye. Matty Schwab, the great uh, grounds crewman for the Reds, they erected a big, tall, uh, darkly painted structure in center field. So... The players would have a nice background to hit. That was also Banny's idea, something new in the ballpark. Um, um, I think the last thing for you, probably on that point, he always said, you know, pump in some new blood. And he wasn't just talking about a local player, or in the case of Ewing, somebody that grew up here. His idea was to have some youth on the team. And if you recall from the Big Red Machine era, it's the same philosophy that Bob Housem had. He tried to get three or four rookies on the team every season. Now, some years they didn't hit that, but they always came close. And the idea was give us some energy, not just the players, but the fans. Give them somebody new to follow. That, too, was Banny's idea. He always pushed uh, the club to, to do that. So he, he was um, far thinking, just far in the distance, a visionary. And um, obviously it, it caught on because it's still going strong today. Yeah, and you mentioned uh, something about uh, giving the fans something new to ponder on the grounds every yes. year. Like I, I read someplace in 1913 when they went into the Palace of the Fans, 
that you actually cut the dirt between the home plate and the pitcher's mound, which you saw in subsequent years all right. over the place. But I think that was his innovation. Give them a give them give the fans something different to look at. Yeah, they even had a, a shamrock. Yes. The, the pitching mound I've in the form that. of a of a shamrock. I. I I never and it obviously s- wasn't St. Patty's Day. I mean, no. they were starting in April, not March 17th. But there was a great Irish presence here as well as German, obviously. And uh, yeah, if you recall, Hausam, I think when he first came in, it was the end of the Crosley Field era. He did something at um, Crosley, might, maybe painted a line or something or t- took down a line for a home run. But the big thing was when he got in the riverfront, they, of course, had the certain, they had the astroturf and the, and the cutouts. But he did, he wanted to... He wanted the fence to be a certain height so the outfielder could go just above it to steal a home run. All kinds of little innovations like that. And again, I'm not saying he stole it from Benny. I'm just saying great minds think alike. They they know what works for connecting the fans. The, the, the one thing Benny never tried, and Housem tried it, but he he liked the idea, what if I could make the ballpark smell like a bakery? You, know, <laughs> you get the baked bread and things like that. He never could quite pull it off. Probably was an early forerunner of the potpourri sense for the kitchens and all that. But yeah, I mean, it's the same idea. You're catering to a fan base. And yeah, you got to be good on the field, but make it entertaining for the people in the stands. Well, and you mentioned music. I think Housen brought in, remember that organ yeah. behind home plate? <laughs> yeah. It would go up and down yeah. Oh yeah. during it, the game. It was uh, anything to keep the fans interested. That was... Uh, Banny's philosophy and Housem's too. I, I think that for me, Housem's obviously the greatest general manager uh, in the history of the Reds, but the greatest uh, forerunner for opening day is is Frank. The, that title will never be taken away from him. He is just, he's the best. He's a early impresario. And um, he did something with scorecards, didn't he? Put I think he did. Pictures. Actually, a good point. 1895, another, again, to me, the first real opening day. Uh, John Riley, a former Reds first baseman, he was a uh, lithographer here in town. Frank had uh, Riley make up a special scorecard just for opening day. Same idea. Give something away, make the fans feel good, and you'll get them back next year or next week. So, yeah, that that's a great uh, recollection by you. I'm trying to think if there's anything else that Banny did. Well, you uh, mentioned uh, number eight on your list. Now, your your book is entitled Opening Day, which is a tremendous book. If you want to know anything about the characters associated with Opening Day and the key events and every single game you've got in there outlined. Thank you. Uh, number eight on your list was schedule some Cracker Jack exhibitions right there in home in the home park for the days leading up to Opening Day. So they, they had some kind of exhibition game yeah, or something? Yeah, in fact, it was interesting. Um. That year, 1895, and, and I th- Banny was one of the first guys to do uh, s- both spring training road trips and postseason road trips, and also would do a lot of exhibitions during the season just to make an extra buck. But he was the first um, American to take a baseball team to Cuba. That would have been in the, maybe the, we're talking way back in the 1880s, maybe. And he, wow. he later discovered... Uh, well, we quite a Cuban presence quite a on Cuban the presence. Uh, Reds teams. Absolutely, uh, Rafael Almeida, the great uh, uh, Marsans, uh, the great outfielder. Um, yeah, he that year the Reds trained in Mobile, Alabama. Now, I don't want to say that necessarily Frank had the first uh, had the idea for spring training, but 
he was among the first. And if you look at where they went every single preseason, it was always someplace new. Several times in New mm. Orleans where Frank had served in the Civil War. But they came north from Mobile, played games along the way. When they got here, it was two weeks before opening day. So they had two weeks of exhibitions. And one, of, actually two of the games were against a, a Negro League team called the Page Fence Giants. And one game was very close, 11-7. The other one might have been a, a little bit more of a blowout. But the point was that Frank was open-minded to recognize two things. One is we've got to play a good team so we can get better for open, by opening day. And as importantly, we have to give other races, other people, an opportunity to play in this great ballpark and get the fans interested in that. So Frank was always also thinking about making money. They drew well for those exhibitions. In the case of the Page Fence Giants, they were at least one of the two games were very close and people got excited, was well written up. In fact, I think one of the papers called it a symphony in black and white. <laughs> the two teams got along famously and um, it just showed people that baseball really was, you know, the national game and that's the way Frank treated it. So I'm glad you brought that up. That's really an important uh, 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 feature of the way Frank approached the game. And again, keep in mind now, always with the idea to make a buck in the process. Oh, yeah. He, he was a heck of a promoter. He was good that way. I mean, that's what he learned after the Civil War, I guess, with theaters and yes. kind of vaudeville acts. And you had to make your own way. And if you didn't want to work in a shoe factory or man somebody's books, if you want to come up with an idea you thought could make money, you had to be creative. And Frank was creative. That's probably his greatest attribute. And he didn't he didn't pass on until 1920. He was... 74 years old. Which uh, is pretty long in those pretty days. Pretty long in those days. In fact, I just heard on the radio the other day that the average life expectancy of a Cincinnatian today is 74. Exact, exact same age that Frank lived to. And mm -hmm. um, yeah, he he was remarkable. And I, 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 I would personally like to see him go into the Reds Hall of Fame. I think now that Marty Bremen's kind of broken the, the ceiling, so to speak, you don't have to be a player or coach or manager, uh, you can be, or front office executive, you can be somebody who's really a legend within that franchise's history and its lore. And Marty's definitely that, and so is Frank, quite frankly. But Banny, Banny should be in the Reds Hall of Fame, no question. Yeah, I don't think there's any question about it. As important as opening day is in Cincinnati. Well, what do you think? You wrote a book on opening day. I wrote a book on Cincinnati opening day. Can we make this happen? I, I think we can make it happen. Let's give it Let's a shot. Let's get a little grassroots campaign. Maybe you can call your friend Bob Castellini and make it happen. All right. I'm with you. I think you probably know Greg <laughs> Rhodes, too. He's a team historian. Yeah, I've heard I've heard something about Greg <laughs> Rhodes. <laughs> well, you know, I'm going to lay something on you today, uh, John. I don't. We didn't prepare anything like that. But what about Marge Schott? I've come up with the idea that maybe she ought to, even though the hundred years later, when she debuted in 1985, you know, after she took over the team, shouldn't we call her the mother of opening day in the sense of the celebration as it is today? Well, I, I had the club in 1994 that we're, we were between beat writers. So I agreed to take over the team until they could find a, a new guy to come in. And that was the year of the two opening days. They had the one for ESPN. I think it was on Easter Sunday night. It was. And Marge gave that the back of her hand. She told the ushers not to dress up in tuxedos, nothing special, no no elephants on the field. And then the Monday after that, she broke out all the stops. She she had the ushers in tuxedos. 
elephants on the field. By the way, I got to give you my favorite quote of all time from from March opening day, and it was by Lenny Harris. He said, "You know, I've played in a lot of different cities, a lot of different openings, opening days, but there's just something about those elephants in Cincinnati because Mar- <laughs> Mar- Marge loved the uh, the zoo animals to get them on the field, and they might make a mess, but the fans enjoyed it. And by the way, speaking of doing things for the fans, I would love if we're talking about having." Um, Crusades. I'd like to see at least one of those floats from the opening day parade take that circle around the warning track of the, of the baseball field. Because again, I've told people this. Yes, opening day in Cincinnati is great, but only one thing makes it special, unique. That's the opening day parade. Now, other cities have had parades, but they've all gone by the wayside, even in, in the old days. When Frank was doing it in the 1890s, Louisville, Pittsburgh, New York City had parades, but they all went by the waysides. Cincinnati's, I think, maybe the only place that still has this great opening day holiday. Get one of those floats on the field. Don't worry about the pristine green grass. It can afford a... Well, Marge brought the elephants out there. She did that. And, you know, I always tell people, you know, you you can badmouth Marge as much as you want, but she still is the last owner that gave us a world championship. And you can argue what you want about whether or not she had a lot to do with that. Maybe in a way there were times where she might have hindered that, but she hired a great manager and Lou Pinella. Bob Quinn was a really, really good GM. You remember the famous coin flip with, with Kale Daniels? I think he won some kind of extra bonus because he, he won the coin flip with Marge. It was her idea. Baseball chastised her for it. But the point is, is that she did some things. She wasn't, she was, didn't want to really spend money in the front office. There's all kinds of stories about her trying to pinch pennies, including she didn't want to put up the $50 annual fee to make Rosie Red an official mascot of the Reds. <laughs> Some of you later come up with the idea, well, let's spend the 50. And I personally think that uh, Rosie Red is the only mascot that I really care about. I love Rosie Red. The point being, Marge had her negatives, but she had a lot of positives. And when she did that thing about opening day and she pulled out all the stops for the Monday game, showed you where her heart was. She knew, again, that the game and the parade was for the fans. And so she said, you know what, I can't, I can't stop you from putting your, your opening day here in Cincinnati on Easter Sunday night, but I'll be doggone if I'm going to make that the center of my universe. My center of my universe is Monday. Back then, Monday was opening day. Now it's Thursday. And by the way, did you know that in the 1890s, opening day was on Thursday? And the reason yeah. was that the Major League Baseball wanted to make it Friday. And Frank said, you know what? Every day had a nickname, and Friday was called Hangman's Day. I guess they hung people on Friday if they, <laughs> they, they, if they murdered somebody. But Frank said, I'm not going to have opening day on Hangman's Day. Give it to me on Thursday. <laughs> so I guess we're back to the future now. We're going with opening there day we go. on Thursday. So, yeah, it's just uh, the whole history is fascinating. You see how intertwined it is. And um, it's so much fun to talk about. In, in March, again, to her credit, she knew – what she was doing. She knew, like Frank, that opening day was the people's day and she was going to give it to him. Yeah. And you mentioned the Rosie Reds. I know that they were made a centerpiece of opening day back in 1965. And yeah. do we know what Rosie stands for? I don't. Do you? Rooters organized to stimulate interest and enthusiasm <laughs> because it's back when the club was threatening to move to San Diego. Yes. That was... Uh, Bill DeWitt was exploring the idea of moving to San Diego. They created that committee of 40, whatever it was, turned out to be mostly, um, not surprising, 1964, a male-dominated organization. But the strongest thing to come out of that was the so-called women's division, which became the Rosie Reds. I did not know this. Maybe you did. 
they got so strong, Randy, that by 1971, only seven years later, they went from the women's division of this male-dominated society to try to find ways to stimulate attendance at the ballpark. They went from that to the Rosie Reds to taking 14 buses to Pittsburgh to see a game hmm. in 1971. 14 buses. That's- by 1971, the guys of Cincinnati were clamoring to be in the Rosie Reds, and that's why it's a... It's a it's a mixed bag. Uh, yeah, they they allow now. men in. Absolutely, now, right? it's quite a deal. Actually, so I mean, let me let me put it this way: nineteen, the first year of ladies' restrooms in the Moon Deck Sun Deck was nineteen thirty nine. Before that, the female fans had to go back out of the ballpark, then come back in in a different location to find a restroom. Thirty nine was the first year. In thirty nine, they had twenty two percent female attendance at the ballpark. Within a few years, once it got those restrooms going, they get up to over 40%, which is, I, I personally think Cincinnati's probably a little bit higher for female attendance at games. I think major league wide, it might be 43%. I think it's, I wouldn't be surprised if it's close to 50 in the city. I think- I wouldn't be surprised. I, I, and, and actually now, bring it full circle, I think there's more restrooms for women than there are men. It might be 18 to 14 plus a lot of so-called you know family uh, family designations, but it's just cool that- the women, oh, another another story. I love this story. Um, one of my favorite things because I just love the the, the touches that a, a woman can bring to a home or in this case, a ballpark. When the Rosie Res got involved, they, they asked the Rosies, well, what do you want to do about the ballpark? And they said, well, we, we love the lemonade, but your ice is dirty. It's kind of like a brownish <laughs> color. So they wound up redoing the ice system. And they got this beautiful lemonade and Hey, we guys, we'll go along with something nice if somebody can make it happen. And largely, in the case of the Reds, so much good has come out of the Rosie Reds, and they deserve so much credit. In 1964, which is, I think when they got started, um, the team finished maybe eight games out. They, they were kind of an also ran that year, but the attendance went up. It was the first time since the World Series of 61 that the team drew over a million. Why? Because it was a better experience to go to the ballpark. And why was that? Because the Rosie Reds made it so. Yeah, so you mentioned you became the beat writer in 1994. Yep. Had you attended opening days prior to that? Yeah, I came to Cincinnati in um, 74 to do news. And 73 was my first Reds game. I was interning in Louisville. Uh, I was going, I went to some opening days, but not a lot. Because I'm one of these guys, I even though I wrote the opening day book, I always regarded myself a little like the way drinkers look at new new year's eve it's like that's for amateurs the pros come out there too late <laughs> so i mean I, i've heard have had players tell me that in cincinnati there's opening day and then there's the other 80 games it's so different it's more of a football atmosphere they just want to get it out of the way so for me there was so much hoopla attached to it i just wanted baseball i want to go down there and see the game so i only went to a couple games uh, on opening day but then by 85 i was working in sports, so I had a good run of opening days. Nothing, nothing, nothing like the records you see some people have today, 60, 70 in a row. But I did my share, and I always covered baseball. Did the started in sports to do the book on Pete Rose chasing Cobb. That was the first book I did. That came out in '86, and then I was off to the races. I was in sports. I loved it, and I think I probably made every opening day after that uh, until. Uh, the Enquirer downsized me out of existence in 2014, but it was it was quite a run and a blast. And let's, let me put it this way. By going to opening day, 
I recognize what we have here. And so now I, I go every year, even though I'm not working as a daily sports writer, I go back because I don't want to miss it. And does any one particular opening day stick out in your memory as like a really special or noteworthy uh, game or date? Well, it's interesting how for my opening day book, we did all those oral histories. And the one thing players remember more than anything else is what the weather was like, especially if it was cold. And there was one opening day, I think it was 14 innings, and I think it was pretty cold that day. The Reds beat the Dodgers. I'm not sure who got the winning hit, but I remember George Foster telling me that he said, you know, you didn't mind swinging and missing because if you if you swung and you fouled it off, you'd feel those those bee stings in your hands from how cold the bat was and how cold <laughs> your hands were. So I think my favorite one was probably that opening day that the Big Red Machine won in 14 innings. I think the Reds had hand warmers in the dugout and everything else, but you know, there's a game in 85, I think, that Rose played where the sun shone, snow came, all combination of weather. And Rose, um, actually, yeah, I think it was 85 because Pete came back in August of 84. And he had uh, maybe three hits that day, knocked in a couple of runs. That was a great opening day as well. So I'd say probably one of those two days. And again, that was oh, his first as a player manager. That was his when he first as back. a player manager, and a lot of times, it's not what you say or do; it's how you make people feel. And Rose made people feel great that day, and the Big Red Machine, of course, always made people feel great. Uh, the Reds didn't always put that great eight on the field at the same time, but you know they were going to do it in the postseason. You knew they were going to do it on opening day. That would might be the last you got to look at that great eight for a while because uh, Sparky was famous for mixing and matching. He liked to keep his players fresh. But um, yeah, that's why to me, those are probably my two favorite opening day memories, 85 and then that. That one was probably 76 with the Dodgers. I think that was 70. That sounds about right. I remember that's a year when the Reds and Dodgers, I think they played six of the first nine games against each other. And they said it was a World Series (laughs) in April. (laughs) That was pretty cool. Or something like that. And the weather was similar to the World Series because yes, it was. it's always cold in late October, early Yeah, November. we don't care if it's cold, though. Oh, my gosh. So, John, what are we going to do to make this happen that Frank Bancroft gets inducted into the Reds Hall of Fame? Well, I do think, as I say, I think Marty, Marty Berman has broken the ceiling on this idea. And I think uh, probably a well-placed article by me. Um, I think that's a great idea. I write some for um, WCPO.com and uh, I have some other outlets. If I can get it started that way, that's usually a good way for me to get myself on the radio and television promoting the piece, in this case, promoting Banny, and just catch the res ear that, you know, it's great to have players go in, and in this case, this year, Marty Brenneman, but let's not forget the greatest figures of our past because you mentioned that you didn't know who Banny was until we wrote the book, and I really didn't know who he was until I wrote the book. So I think people need to remember this guy. So I think... Yeah, well-placed article, some TV appearances, and and then go to the Reds and catch their attention and see if we can make this happen. Okay, and I'm going to invite all the listeners to write into the Cincinnati Reds and advocate for Frank Bancroft to be inducted into the Reds Hall of Fame. We'll see if we can get some grassroots movement here. I love it. 
So, John, I've really enjoyed learning more about one of your favorite people, Frank Bancroft. We kind of delved off into the uh, Rosie Reds and Marge <laughs> and Pete and who knows what else. But they've all had a great influence on our great holiday in Cincinnati. It's truly been an honor, honor to have you join us. I enjoyed it, Randy. This was really fun. So I want to thank our listeners who have joined us for this episode of Freaking Out About Opening Day with Randy Freaking and hope you will tune in to more of our episodes as we approach opening day. This is Randy Freaking signing off and in the immortal words of Marty Brenneman, so long everybody.